Well, we're back. That heat was kind of rough. We missed three or four weeks because of the weather. And then when we got the good weather, we got hot weather. But, Lord, we're not complaining. It's nice to be back under the air conditioner. We're in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to look at two chapters this evening. And when we find Nehemiah in this book, he's, he's at the top of his profession when we meet him. But we know we know a little of his background and the position of influence that Nehemiah had. However, let's not kid ourselves because God, even before Nehemiah came on the pages of the Scripture, God was on his side. He was listening and hearing from God. Nehemiah, he probably grew up in Babylon among the exiles, and that for some reason, possibly, he, he probably was too young to go with Ezra in his first trip to Jerusalem. But between the closing verses of Ezra and the first verse of Nehemiah, we have jumped ahead from the winter of 458 B.C. to the spring of 445 B.C. And so we're in the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia. And it's sort of like a documentary. Those things can be dragged on and you fall asleep quickly, and we hope that don't happen tonight. But it's a sidebar as we reference this time from Ezra 10 to Nehemiah 1. And if you know anything about the Hebrew books of the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, though written quite separately, were considered as one book. Nehemiah first appears in Susa, the capital of the citadel, about 225 miles east of Babylon. It was built on three hills overlooking the Shar River. It was the winter resort of most of the kings of Persia, located today on the western edge of Iran, about 150 miles east of the Tigris River. Greater Susa stood on a mound about two and a quarters in circumference, covering nearly 250 miles. So it was a huge place. Susa was an ancient city of the Elamites, Persian and Parthians, empires of Iran, one of the oldest known settlements of the world. And it is mentioned in the book of Daniel about 19 times, and in the book of Esther too. The city had been taken during the reign of Cyrus at the time of the first wave of the returning exiles in 538 B.C. Darius was responsible for building the palace approximately 50 years before the period in question here in Nehemiah. We find Nehemiah, when he comes on the scene, he's the king's cupbearer. And we know this was an extremely important position. It was detrimental to your health sometimes, too. Usually in Assyrian and Persian courts, the cupbearer had access to the king's harem, so they mostly became eunuchs. I don't know if Nehemiah was a eunuch or not. The cupbearer job description, we probably know, as the word implies, made sure that the king's cup, whatever it was, it wasn't poisonous. Ancient rulers feared most was to have their food and drink poison. Matter of fact, an attempt was on Darius III's life. A assassin named Boigoas, he tried to poison him, and the Persian Empire fell the next year to Alexander the Great. 
the attempt fell with Darius and, and because they made Borgoas drink the poison. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. Nehemiah appears as one of the most admirable men in Scripture. We need to learn from his character and everything. There's a glimpse of Christ-likeness in his life. He is demonstrated as he goes, we'll see him as he goes to his everyday job. Nehemiah had the image of God on him. I don't understand the matter of him pulling out these guys' hair. That wasn't too much like Christ-like, but we'll get to that later. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1, 2 through 2 says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hilkiah, it came to pass in the months of Chevzlu, that's November or December, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with me from Judah, not a biological, my biological brethren, but a spiritual brother. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And my question is, are we concerned for Calvary Restore not only on Sunday, but are we praying for the church? Are we praying for the members here? And it's amazing how God gets our attention. He prompts us to pray. If we didn't have any concerns, I wonder how much would we pray? Verse 3 says, And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are, are there in great distress and reproach. Nehemiah I want us to see this. He's not in great distress. He's doing pretty well. His life is great. He goes on to say, the wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. The city wall's construction had evidently begun, but when the, the copy, uh, Artaxerxes sends this copy, a letter was read before the scribe, Rahum and Shimshai, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force made them cease. And that was in Ezra chapter 4. So it's 18 years after the initial return under Cyrus in 538 B.C., the temple reconstruction was complete. For some 80 years, the walls of the city remained in ruins, condition which Nebuchadnezzar had left them. Sometimes between the close of Ezra and the opening of Nehemiah, However, work on the rebuilding of the city walls had evidently begun, then summarily stopped. These are the circumstances which we meet Nehemiah for the first time. He has just heard the news, possibly his own brother, that things were not going so well in Jerusalem. And I want us to see the difficult position Nehemiah was, his impeccable character, but were he suddenly to begin advocating for the city of Jerusalem against the express orders of Artaxerxes, he would put himself in a bad position, a deemed a threatening position, and his life would bring a swift end, would come to a swift end. Nehemiah found himself in a very precarious position. When you find yourselves in that kind of position, it's always time to pray. Proverbs 10, 13 tells us, wisdom is found on the lips of him who has understanding, but a rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. It's time to pull out the best weapon the Christian has, and that's prayer. 
Mark 9, 23, Jesus tells us, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Hebrews 4, 16 says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 4, so it was when I heard these words, Nehemiah is saying, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. Once again, Nehemiah's life is fine. He's doing well, but he has a heart for his people. It says, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I don't know if Nehemiah knew it, but he probably did. He had began the work right there. Have you heard any troubled words lately? Words of concern, words of doubt. God wants you to draw near to him. Prayer wasn't Nehemiah's last resort, by the way. It was his first resort. And it should be in every child of God's number one weapon. By the dates mentioned in the opening verses of chapters 1 and 2, it shows that at least three and possibly five months passed by. What would we be thinking when nothing happens that we're praying for during that time? God's not working. God's not concerned. He doesn't care. And that the praying mentioned here, we have to understand, has been going on for days. It meant to be understood as covering the entire time period we have here. I read in some articles, and I told you guys this before, that the average Christian prays three minutes a day. I pray that's not any of us. As I said before, prayer is always, is always the word. Nehemiah continued praying, patiently waiting on God's timing and God's insight. Let's remember God, he is outside of time. He sees the end from the beginning. He sees the twist and turns clearly. And he knows what might look like the exact timing for us, but it's not. And while we are fussing about God doesn't really care, God doesn't really hear our prayers, and he is not concerned with us, he knows what would happen, who knows what would happen if he allowed our timings of things to take place. But the main thing was during this time of God communicating with Nehemiah, God was speaking to Nehemiah and preparing his heart and changing his temperament. And as Nehemiah started to conform, as prayer always does, to his will, to God's will, his timing and plan, all of a sudden, he could rest in the Lord. Jesus told us in Matthew 28, come unto me, all you who are labor, are laboring heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he knew it was about God's timing, that God cared more about the children of Israel and their distress in Babylon than he did. Knowing that God was even now working on the children of Israel's situation, knowing that his praying for guidance, what was about to happen, and when to speak, then at whatever point it became clear to him that he would ask for the king's permission to go to Jerusalem. The prayer would take on greater urgency at that time, anticipating the right circumstances in which he would speak to the king. Verse 4, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. 
that's okay. He's about to start his work. He says, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The survivors who are left from the captivity in province are there in great distress and reproach. Remember verse 5, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. Humility always begins by simply understanding that God is God and we're not. He says, you who keep your covenant and mercy. I love that word mercy is hesed. It's goodness and kindness. It's a covenantal word and mercy with those who love you and observe. That, that word uh, observe is shamar, to keep guard, observe, give heed. Give heed to what? To your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant. This prayer reflected Nehemiah's complete dependence on the Lord. Only God could help. And if God would only hear, Nehemiah knew that he would help. He says, which I pray before you now day and night. So this wasn't just a one-time prayer. Like I said, it consumes the entire time before God moves on King Artaxerxes' heart to say something. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 7, 7 through 12. Jesus implores us to ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. You know, I was thinking about when he says, for everyone asks receives. Either receives the answer to the prayer that you want or receives a different answer but you're going to receive something from the Lord if we seek him. And he who seeks, find. And to him who knocks, it will be open. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It sums up the whole Old Testament. Verse 6, he says, For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins. Prayer should always start by confession of our error. Of the children of Israel, which we have sinned. He admits that against you. Anytime we sin, even though I might sin against my wife, I'll sin against my brother or sister. The number one person we sin against is God. He says, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. You, have not, we, uh, you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you have commanded your servant Moses. Humility will also confess sin openly. Nehemiah plainly and simply confessed sin without any attempt of excusing his sin, or his people's sin. Humility also understands our complete dependence on God. Verse 8, remember, he says, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, God keeps his word, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. That, that has come to pass. But if you return to me, that's mercy and grace, and keep my commandments... Notice when you return, nothing changes. God's 
will, his commandments are still in front of us and do them. Though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to a place which I have chosen as my dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your power. Nehemiah reminds the Lord that the people of Israel are his servants, those whom he has redeemed. The verb used in the Hebrew is padai. It's the strongest possible affirmation that a ransom price has been made on their behalf. It is as though Nehemiah sort of was living in the, under the new covenant. When we start our prayers, or even in the middle or the end, we always say in Jesus' name because Jesus is our great high priest, and he has to take my twisted prayers sometimes and rearrange them so God can take them, and, it is, and it's a sweet-smelling savor to him. And that's what Nehemiah does. The covenant between God and his people, it's like a marriage bond. The children of Israel was God's people, just as God was theirs. He had pledged himself to them. And this now forms the basic of Nehemiah's prayer, just like us. When we say, our Father, which in, who is art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thou kingdom come, thou will be done. The Lord's prayer. We have a relationship with God. He knows us by name. We're, we are no stranger to him. And by your strong hand, he says. And, you know, this reminds me once again of Moses when he was wrestling with God not to destroy the children of Israel. When Aaron had made that golden calf and God said he would not go with them, Moses began his intercessory prayer for the people, and God changed his mind. Moses was their intercessor. Verse 11 Nehemiah continues, O Lord, I pray, please let your, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name, to honor your name, to reverence your name, to walk as if we are honoring his name, and let your servant prosper this day. I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. We don't know, once again, how long before the, the, the tide begins to turn when, when Artaxerxes will finally say something to Nehemiah. But I want us to understand whether it was a month, two months, or six months, all this time was bathed with his prayer. Every day, I guess he felt, oh, Lord, when are you going to move? Every week. Lord, I've been praying for a week now. Nothing has happened, but God is on the move. Chapter 2, and it is noteworthy that he continued prayer probably around five months as he went about his daily work. He did not give up. Do we wrestle with the Lord like that? Or do we say a prayer and wait on something to happen, and if it doesn't happen, we say, well, it wasn't meant to be. God wants us to press in, to push in, to his will. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine. He's still doing his job. I bet he hasn't missed a day at work. He's walking by faith and gave it to the king. 
Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, that's the testimony. The king realizes he's sad. Why is your face sad since you are not sick? I would ask, well, how do you know I'm not sick, king? Probably would have got my head chopped off, but I would ask them that. So I became dreadfully afraid. God will still use this man because he's been bathed in prayer and said to the king, may the king live forever. Now, he had not engaged in spontaneous prayer at the moment. King Artaxerxes asked him, why is he looking so sad? But it is vital, impressive as the spontaneity instinct of prayer is in Nehemiah to note that it was possible only because of the weeks or the months he had been in prayer with God. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, I ask whether you pray because a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. All the children of God on earth are like in this respect. From the moment there is any life, any reality about their religion, they pray. Just as, as the first sign of a life in an infant when born into the world is the act of breathing, so the first act of men and women when they are born again is praying. This is one of the common marks of all of the elect of God. We need to be persistent in prayer. It's intimately related to maintaining a discipline. We need to be disciplined of our regular times of prayer. Do you have a disciplined time of prayer? Everything Nehemiah achieved for the kingdom of God is based on this initial portrait of his commitment of daily prayer. Are we committed in prayer like this? It's no telling what CR could do if we were diligent in prayer. I'm sure Nehemiah didn't pray the same words every day, but he listened as the Lord moved him, and he poured out his heart to God. And it was God who was leading him in prayer, and I'm sure instructing him how to pray and what to pray for specifically. So when the time came, and it will come, it was like the Hoover Dam being opened up. He was ready to go and talking to God precisely what to say. Verse 4, then the king said to me, God, all this time was moving in Artaxerxes' heart. Proverbs 21.1, I love this. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. That's everyone's heart. You got an unsaved child? Continue to pray. God is working. He says, I work him and my father, we're always working. And he's working in our behalf. And that was from all those months of praying before he made this encounter. I often say prayer is the work. It was already done. Here it comes, all of those months of talking and listening to God and building up trust and understanding that he was talking to the one who holds all power in his hand, and nothing is too difficult for him. That should give us confidence. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, that sets the order. It puts it 
in the right sequence, the right perspective. He says, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, and it's so funny to me that the Holy Spirit lets us know, the queen also beside him. And I'm the type to think, why would the Holy Spirit say, let us know the queen was there? Because this man is about to renege on what he had said, and the queen is probably looking at him, like, I don't believe you're doing this. And he's going to change his mind and show Nehemiah's favor. So all the testosterone of the king is, I'm not going to change my mind. I'm not going to change my mind. He's been praying for six months or a year. We don't know how long. And the Lord was chiseling on his heart. He comes out and asks him, how long will, you, will your journey be? And when will you return? Nehemiah probably said, what did you say? Give me a drink of that wine real quick. I can't believe it. So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, and he continues, he's, he's confident. And the reason he's confident, he's been in fellowship, he's been in prayer with the Lord. If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. I'm sure the Lord was speaking to Nehemiah all about this and how it was going to happen, the months in prayer. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. I submit when we pray, the good hand of the Lord is always upon us. The hand, if the hand of the Lord is not always upon us for anything else, it is when we are communicating with him. And that's why it's so good to communicate with him. Because when we leave, his hand is still upon us. Ephesians 3, 20, 21 tells us, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Verse 9, then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river. He's walking with a sure step and gave them the king's letter. Now the king has sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. A four-month journey this is. I want, I want you to remember the fact that Ezra, a dozen or so years before this, had refused one. Uh, Ezra chapter 8. Nehemiah accepted as a matter of wisdom. So Ezra said, hey, we don't need anything from you, king. Nehemiah says, it would be helpful if you sent some help with us. As we touched on in Ezra, the fact that two, and I want you to hear me clearly, two godly men could arrive at different conclusions about a similar issue should be a reminder that we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to entertain 
over or have a judgmental opinion about others' action when we are ignorant of all the details. God sees the whole picture. It don't matter what Ezra asked for or Nehemiah asked for. Oh, no, he should have. No, he shouldn't have. We don't know the whole details. God knows them. It is possible to conclude that one or the other was mistaken in his conclusion. But what seems more likely is that both were correct. God used both of them. Verse 10, when Samballot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite officials heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. That's funny. <laughs> Who's going to help the Jews? Nobody. These three fellows were going to meet Samballot the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian, whom we will meet later on. These three men were enemies of God and his people. They had tried to hinder the building of the temple, and now they want to hinder the rebuilding of the wall. When Nehemiah came with this tremendous retina of entourage, the servants and soldiers, everybody in the country had heard of it. Verse 11, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. So after arriving in Jerusalem, it seems that Nehemiah, he didn't want pressure, undue pressure to be on anyone. So he gets on his horse at night and he goes out to see what the walls look like. He says, and I went out by night through the valley gate. And these gates represented protection. So he wanted to see the protection of Jerusalem. The very stones were pre precious to Jerusalem. It says in Psalms 87, 1 through 3, his foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God, Selah. Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Verse 14, then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. There was so much debris that Nehemiah could not ride horseback through it. He had to dismount. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the walls. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. He reminds me of when uh, Joshua goes out and he begins to check out the land when he meets the angel of the Lord. But no matter what trial or heartache besets us, God will never leave us nor forsake us. And that should be our confidence. That's what Nehemiah had going for him. The, I'm reminded of the elders and I, we were talking about, man, if, are we ever going to get a church building? And I don't, it might have been me. I don't know who said it when we were in the meeting. They said, well, God can do anything he wants to. It's all in God's timing. But we have to make sure we're walking right. We're, we're fellowshipping. We're, we're making sure we're taking care of the flock right. And God will produce. But it's all in his timing. Verse 16, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. 
Nehemiah is playing his cards close to the vest. Then I said, verse 17, then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem. I don't think they have ever heard anyone speak like Nehemiah is speaking, that we may no longer be a reproach. Anytime our walls, whether it's individual walls, whether it's the church walls, anytime our walls are in disrepair, they're, they're broken down, they're torn down, that gives the enemy easily access to us, plus it's shameful for the Lord, for a believer to be in that situation. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's word that he has spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. So Nehemiah called the meeting of the leaders in the surrounding area of Jerusalem. He told them how God had led him, how he had protected them, and he's ready to start the work. He says, let's do the job. Let's get it done. And they all responded well. They saw the confidence of Nehemiah in Nehemiah. Verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Gisham the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us. You will always have those that laugh, no matter, especially when you're doing something for the Lord. They will deter you. They will, they will say you can't do it. They will make fun of your work, but keep your eyes on the Lord and despise us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? They don't even know the story. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. You have to be careful. Close with that. You have to be careful who your friends are or who your so-called friends are, especially if they're unbelievers. I'm not saying to, to minister to unbelievers, but we should not be walking with unbelievers. And unbelievers will always say, when they're trying to get in or trying to get something from you, that they are believers. We have to be wise. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. He's being wise. He has confidence in the Lord, and that confidence is spreading to the rest of the Jews. And that's what every, especially every pastor here, every elder here, we shouldn't have a woe is me mentality because it affects the congregation. We should have confidence in our Lord, that we're on his page, that we're following him. And when we're following the Lord, it doesn't matter what anyone says. As long as we're following the Lord, that's all that matters. So keep your eyes on the Lord. You're going to hear the whispers. You're going to hear all that stuff. But if you keep your eyes on the Lord, you will succeed. That is relative, but to God, if we're uh, succeeding with him, we're always victorious for it. Let's pray. Father, I just want to say thank you for your correcting hand, for your loving hand, for your disciplined hand, Lord. 
You love us. You love your kids. And you discipline those you love. May we continue to follow you, Lord. This book of Nehemiah is going to be a great book, Lord. I pray that we would take heed, that we would learn from Nehemiah's journey with you, Lord. He was full of confidence, and his confidence came from you. He wasn't prideful. He just knew who was leading him. He knew your power, and he knew you, he was on, in your will. And so we should always have confidence when we're walking in your will, Father God. I pray for the fellowship at Restore, Lord. I pray for all of the things that we have coming for the rest of the year, Lord, that we have planned well, that we're waiting on you to instruct us, Father God, that we will be men of women of prayer, and that we will be pleasing in your sight, Father God. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.